privilege to be with you all this morning. Certainly thankful for your support, your encouragement, your prayers for us as we uh, labor on the campus at Florida Atlantic University. I'm bringing to you uh, a message from the series that we're currently in on Wednesday nights, and so it's a privilege uh, for me to do that. Uh, Follow along with me, if you will, as we read God's word from James, beginning in James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Our Lord and our God, as we have your word open before us this morning, so we come and ask that you'll open our hearts to receive it. Uh, We pray that your spirit will apply the truths of your words and even the truths of this message in order to transform us to change us, to help us see the beauty of who you are, the hope that is ours in Christ, the fruit of his righteousness applied to our lives, and that we'll leave here this morning transformed because of these realities. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As a college pastor, as someone who works on the campus ministry, we're very much in tune to some of the apologetics questions that students are asking, the, 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 the challenges that they have to the faith, the, the impediments that they have to believe. And what's interesting is that a number of people have pointed out that students in this generation are asking a question that's a little bit different than generations past. For many of us, we can remember back to maybe the days of whenever we were younger, when we were in college, or in our youthful days, that one of the primary questions that we would ask or that we would hear is, is Christianity true? Are the facts of God's word real? What can we offer as an apologetic argument against the the challenges of unbelief? Is Christianity true? Uh, Some have even started to ask the question, you know, sort of after that, is, is is Christianity satisfying? 
Uh, if I put my belief, if I, if I put my trust in this, will I, will I find it to be a satisfying question? Will it be a, a satisfying way to live? There's a little bit of a different question that students are asking today, and that question is, is Christianity safe? Is this a worldview that provides a sense of, uh, a sense of safety as I navigate the challenges of, of the world, as I, as I surround myself with other believers? Is this a safe place for me to be? And while that might be a somewhat of a new question in our generation, it's actually not a new question historically. In the year 400, <laughs> 1,600 years ago, I believe it was actually in the year 410, the city of Rome fell to an attack. The city of Rome, the eternal city, the place that was defined by the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, fell to an attack. And the question that began to be asked within the Roman Empire was whether or not the fall of Rome was the effect of Christians who had gained influence in that country, in that city, in that culture. Were Christians to blame for the fall of Rome? In other words, is Christianity safe? In response to that, St. Augustine wrote one of his magnificent works, The City of God, in the year 415, as a response to that belief. And in that book, The City of God, Augustine argued that, in fact, no, it's not Christians who are to blame for the fall of Rome. In fact, Christians are the ones who you should be looking to for what has been preserved within this society. But, in fact, that the fall of Rome is a result of the decadence and the sin and the evil, the, eternal, or the, the internal corruption within that city has led to the fall of that once glorious place. But in this book, The City of God, Augustine lays out two competing worldviews, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man personified by the values and beliefs and the systems of this world the world of unbelief, versus the city of God, that place of eternal hope, that place defined by faith, that place defined as the, where God rules and reigns and his kingdom comes. Augustine was laying out for all the church in the world who would engage in this, the two competing worlds, the city of man and the city of God. And Augustine argued that in our lifetimes, we exist in these two worlds We live in the city of man. We are surrounded by people who are defined by the values of this world in which we live. And yet at the same time, as believers, our citizenship is not in this world, but in an eternal reality of the city of God. And what Augustine was laying out for us was not something that was new to him. It was not something that he invented, but really we would say that it's an application that we could even read in the book of James and throughout God's word. Two competing worldviews. The world in which we see ourselves, the world that's often dominated by news, the world that often captures the attention of the culture around us, and yet at the same time, we live, don't we, according to the values of a world radically different, defined by God through his word, defined with true, eternal, real hopes. And so my challenge for us this morning as we dive into the book of James is to unpack the reality of the ways of this world versus godly wisdom, the ways of of this world that we see that can be so subtly, can so subtly creep into our own thinking and our own mindset and rather to be transformed by the truths of God's word and to live according to the wisdom that comes from above. Let's dive in, shall we? Let's look first of all at the ways of this world that James calls our attention to see, the way in which this world so often 
operates. If you look at chapter 3, verse 14, he lays it out for us quite clearly. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This, he tells us, is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. There we have it right there, don't we? In verse 14, what does the way of this world look like? Well, it looks like a life of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's interesting in the Greek that that word bitter jealousy is actually, trans- the actual uh, Greek words are really bitter zeal. And if you think about the way those two ideas work, if you have bitter zeal, if you have this, this zealous lifestyle, but it's born out of a sense of bitterness towards others around you, does it not then produce, as James is telling us in here, a sense of bitter jealousy, a life of, of self-promotion and bitterness to those around me. Seeing the world and seeing my friends and seeing our family members and business partners as those who are opponents to overcome because I'm out to look out for myself with a sense of bitter zeal which produces a jealous spirit. I believe it was the writer Jerry Bridges who called us to see that comparison, which is the heart of jealousy, isn't it? Comparison is such a dangerous world to engage in because it only produces two effects. It either leads to pride on the one hand, as we compare ourselves to others around us and we come out as we think ahead, leads to a sense of pride or it leads to a sense of bitter jealousy. And both, he rightly points out, are sin. And James calls us to see that if you have bitter jealousy, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. But it's not just bitter jealousy. He calls us to also see selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Sort of the two sides of the same coin. And as I thought about this, I really realized ambition can so often get a bad rap as if ambition in and of itself is a bad thing. And I think we have to be careful with how we define these terms and how we apply it to the world in which we live. Ambition in and of itself, I would argue, is not necessarily a bad thing. If you think about it from a business perspective, whether it's an entrepreneur or a business owner, seeking in their ambition to be successful in business with a godly perspective, what are they seeking to do but hopefully provide a business or a service or a product that is to the benefit of those who partake of it And to their own profit, that we have this exchange, that in this ambition, everybody benefits and everybody wins. I was sharing with the elders a moment ago as we were praying that uh, my my boys are playing football. They're in the middle of football season right now. And And as we've talked about what teamwork looks like, isn't it impossible if you're truly playing as a team to only look out for number one? But if there's ambition within the team, if everybody succeeds, then the team is successful. Ambition in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. But he warns us about this sense of selfish ambition. This way of thinking that the world revolves really around myself as the center of the universe. And all of my ambitious plans revolve around whether or not I get ahead, whether I win the argument, whether I'm the one that's seen as successful, regardless of what happens to those around me. James tells us in verse 15, this is not the wisdom, he says, that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
you can even see the descending order of those, of those words. It's, it's earthly. We, we, we kind of capture that. Like, I can see the earthliness around that, but unspiritual. Un- it's not godly. And it's even, he goes on to say, demonic. I think if most of us were to think about what would a demonic influence look like, it's probably something that looks like one of the horror movies that we see advertised around Halloween of, of somebody who's, who's been possessed by a demon and causes us to recoil in fear at the horror of what we see. But I think James calls us to see that the forces of darkness are far more subtle than that. That the sense of pride that can so easily capture our hearts the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that begins to define the way in which we live. Well, that, he says, is not just earthly, but even demonic. And so what does it do? Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 1, to call us to see that the, that the quarrels and the fights that we see at war within us are caused from this very reality. We desire and we do not have, so we murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Is Christianity safe? <laughs> My question would be, what does a world of unbelief look like defined by the values of this world looks like a world of strife and envy and destruction and relationships that have been destroyed. Several years ago, I remember uh, hearing about a movie about the, the plot line of this movie. Is, it's not one of those ones that you would necessarily recommend, but the storyline is interesting. Three men find a plane that's been crashed in the woods, and in that plane was millions of dollars in cash and bags in the back of that plane, the pilot who had perished in this plane crash had no identification, no way to find out who he was, where he was going, or what was happening. And so the three men hatched up a plan. Let's just keep quiet. And if nobody claims the money, we'll go about our separate ways, we'll divide it up, we'll leave town, and no one will ever know. Sounds simple. But as the story unfolds, what happens but Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition begins to crop into their relationships as they realize they can't trust one another. And story is starting to get spread and rumors are starting to go around. And by the end of this story is a sense of darkness because of the destruction that has come within the relationships that have occurred within these people. Every vile practice has destroyed the relationships And while that sounds like it can be sort of an extreme example, isn't it so true, though, in our own relationships, in our own families, in our own friendships, where we've seen that same sense of jealousy and ambition and striving for self come in, that it leaves relational carnage behind, even to the detriment of those around us. This is a challenging verse for me as I think about our call on the college campus because as we serve on the campus, uh, on the college campus, uh, surprise, surprise, RUF, we're not the only campus ministry on campus. Uh, there's other campus ministries who are doing good gospel work and uh, we often have students who are involved in, in a couple of different ministries and are trying to navigate that world. Do you not see the ease in which Jealousy and ambition can creep into that world as there's a desire to reach those around them. Well, for bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, 
to exist. And even when I preach this message to our students, I challenge them with the idea of even thinking about how do we speak about other brothers and sisters? Is it defined by the truth of God's word, seeking the best interests of those around us? And that's true, not just in the college context of ministry. It's true, I believe, even within our own churches. I recently heard an interview with a pastor in South Florida who said that as he came to plant the church in South Florida, he got tired of seeing he got tired of seeing all of these little tiny four, five hundred, six hundred member churches and thought, we need to just do something big. And I thought, within this, you can hear dripping selfish ambition and rivalry against what God is doing across the kingdom of God and the churches within our region and within our midst. Even within the church, we can become defined by a sense of bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition when comparisons begin to define who we are. James tells us that's wisdom, quote-unquote, that's not from above, but that comes from this world. Compare that to the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians as Paul is writing from prison. In prison, because of his ministry of preaching the gospel, he hears a report of those who are actually preaching the gospel, quote-unquote, in order to cause problems for him while he's in prison. And how does Paul respond to this? Listen to these words from the book of Philippians. Paul writes, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There's our words right there. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What are they doing? They're preaching the gospel in order to make his life more difficult. And what's his response to that? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's not an attitude that's defined by worldly thinking. That's not an attitude that's defined by selfish ambition and what am I getting out of this? That's a attitude that's defined by a wisdom from above. The wisdom that James is calling us to in this passage. So if the first thing we see in this passage is, is a warning to avoid this, this sense of worldly ambition and selfish desires, James is calling us then to a wisdom that comes from above. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's such an interesting phrase that he uses. Let him who is mature, let him who is defined by godly wisdom, show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I think sometimes as Christians, we become so fearful of being defined as a legalist that anytime we hear any, uh, any call to works, to show our works, to live faithfully, we become afraid of being a legalist, and so we avoid that. And yet at the same time, God's word calls us so clearly to see that in response to a faith in Christ, God calls us then to live out our salvation by faith and good works. Not in order to merit our salvation, but as the fruit born out of a heart that's been transformed by his grace. But what I think is so interesting about this is that this call to show our good works is in the meekness of wisdom. Most of us avoid the the conversations of meekness. It's not a word that you hear very often, and it's probably one that if somebody were to say, man, I love talking to him because he's so meek, you'd probably think, like, what an insult. (laughs) 
Is that really what I come off as meek? Thanks. Meek, meekness just sounds like weakness. And so I think because of that, we're just not really sure what to do with it. But really the word meek comes from an, agra- an agrarian and agricultural definition that a wild animal like a horse or, a, or, a, uh, or an ox that has been meeked is one in which has been controlled and constrained that its power is able to now be put to work for productive purposes. That horse has been meeked is one that you can ride. An oxen that has been meeked is one that you can count on to do the work to put his full strength in order for it to be harnessed and for good to be produced from it. Rather than being weak, it's actually taking this sense of wisdom and putting it under control. I thought about the contrast of that last weekend whenever it was, you know, it was rainy and the weather was really bad and we turned on the TV really quick and my boys were watching a bull riding event. Have you ever watched this? Uh, when, when a man jumps on this bull and it's out of control, wild, it's, it's not meek. It's uncontrollable. It's dangerous. They're wearing a helmet and a chest protector and hopefully nobody gets killed because of this. We could say that that's what James is saying. A person who's not meek, who's defined by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, is like a wild, out-of-control animal. Watch out. There will be relational carnage everywhere it goes, but the meekness that comes from God is this wisdom and strength that's been taken under control in order to serve the Lord and those around us in a way that is actually quite beautiful. James calls us to see the fruit of that in verse 17. This wisdom, he says, well, above all, he says, first it's pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. What a convicting list of words to read through. Pure. Spiritually, we have integrity. Gentle. That word for gentle is the ability to suffer injustice without hatred or malice towards those who inflict the pain. Open to reason. Don't we live in such a culture that is so quick to argue, so quick to shout, so slow to listen? And isn't James so often calling us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, open to reason, willing to hear, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial? The truth wins out, not with a slanted agenda, but someone who's trustworthy. I often think about our culture and this desire to see, is Christianity a safe place? Is Christianity, does it produce the fruit that we're longing for within our hearts? And I think James would cause us to see that if this is truly the application of the gospel in our lives, we would see that within the church, within the community of believers, we would find a people who are radically different than the way in which this world operates. I thought about that recently as I, I, I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball. I apologize for another sports analogy, but it's one that I think is fitting. Uh, this summer, a man named Buck O'Neill was inducted to the Hall of Fame, 2022. Hall of Fame members, uh, writers uh, for baseball voted on their inductions to the Hall of Fame, and a man named Buck O'Neill was inducted. 
Buck O'Neill played his entire baseball career in the Negro Leagues. Uh, he was the first black coach in Major League Baseball. Jackie Robinson obviously broke the color barrier. As a player, he broke the color barrier as a coach. And throughout the rest of his career, whenever he was finished coaching, he devoted the rest of his life to being an ambassador for the sport of baseball and telling the story of the Negro Leagues. So much so that near the end of his life, one of the final projects of Buck O'Neill's life was to advocate for all of these players who played in the Negro Leagues that they should have the ability to be voted into the Hall of Fame. And so in 2006, 16 years ago, the first vote was taken, and a number of African-American players who played in the Negro Leagues were inducted into the Hall of Fame, but not Buck O'Neill. Many believe that he should have been there for his playing and for what he did crossing the color barrier as a coach, but he was passed over. And yet he was asked, will you give the speech inducting all of these players? I thought about myself in those shoes. What type of bitterness would I feel? Here's a man who has devoted the end of his life to telling these stories, advocating for them. He's not voted in, but he's asked, will you be the one that gives the speech to induct these men? 2006, three months before he died, as he stands up to give this speech, he tells, says this to the, to, the, uh, to the audience. People always said to me, I know you hate people for what they did to you or what they did to your parents. His grandfather was a slave. He said, no, man, I never learned to hate. I hate cancer. Cancer killed my mother. My wife died 10 years ago of cancer. He said, by the way, I'm single, ladies. <laughs> he said, I hate AIDS. AIDS killed my best friend. I hate AIDS. But agape love is a redemptive goodwill toward all men. Agape is an overflowing love that seeks nothing in return. And when you reach love on that level, you love all men, not because you like them, nor because their ways appeal to you, but you love them because God loved them. And I love Jehovah, my God, with all my heart, with all my soul, and I love every one of you as I love myself. I thought, here's a man, and you can hear it in every interview that he gave, defined by the humility that's not defined by this world, but that's defined by a heavenly wisdom that comes from above, <clears throat> has infiltrated every relationship in every speech, no malice, no envy, no bitter, but a joyful, overflowing love that's a true example of godly wisdom that James is calling us to show forth. The question is, how do we get there? How do we move from, from the ways of this world to a path that's defined with this wisdom from above that's defined by these fruits that we read in verse 17? And I think the answer comes primarily in verse 6 and verse 10 of chapter 4. The third thing for us to see this morning is that James, really God, calls us to a path of humility. Look at verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he goes on to say in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, so therefore, humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. And once again, we find ourselves in one of these conundrums of how do we become a people defined by humility? And what does humility even look like? There's such a danger that if we were actually truly really humble people, we would probably brag about it and say, look how humble I am. And there would be nothing within our testimony that bears that reality out. C.S. Lewis famously said that 
When you find somebody who's truly humble, probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. And if you do dislike him, it'll probably be because you felt a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He'll not be thinking about humility. Well, he won't be thinking about himself at all. How does one get to that place to where we are no longer the center of attention? What does true humility look like? Well, if humility is the call, look with me at verses 8 and verse 9. Draw near, we're told, to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, sandwiched between these calls to humility is a call, I believe, to repentance. A call for us to examine our hearts and to realize that these defining characteristics of verse 17 and verse 18 and throughout this whole passage are so often not true of us that if I do a careful and we do a careful examination of our own hearts and our own lives, don't we too so often find ourselves defined by the world's standards? Don't we too so often find ourselves Well, in this place of seeking friendship with the world, hoping to just get along, hoping to find a place, James calls us to mourn those realities, to draw near to God by mourning your sin, by being broken over the places where you've fallen short of His glory, where you've fallen short of His word, where you can cause yourself to gaze upon the beauty of Christ, who would go to a cross for our sin, for your sin, for my sin, where he was crucified on that cross in order that we might have life. Once again, in the book of Philippians, Paul is so clear to tell us that what did Jesus do in that act of humility? But he emptied himself, made himself nothing, and went to the cross, whereby who exalts him, but God exalts him to the highest place to give him the name that's named above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God himself. If Jesus was crucified for my sin, then surely I can mourn the realities of my sin by drawing near to God. Rather than laughing, we can turn to mourning. Rather than life with false uh, happiness, we can truly live a life spiritually of gloom, knowing that in that path we find the hope of Christ. And so, too, the reality is in verse 10, that in humbling ourselves before the Lord, truly God himself exalts his people. Augustine was right in 1,600 years ago when he wrote that book, The City of God. There really are only two ways to live. There's only two worldviews that operate in this world, the city of man and the city of God. And truly, as we see in this passage, it's the city of God that produces the lasting fruit that brings peace and mercy, and joy, and humility before God and before those around us. And so my prayer for us this morning as we leave here, as we hear God's word and as it's applied to our hearts and our lives, so too we'll apply these realities to the friendships and the relationships and the family members where peace needs to be restored, where hope needs to be held out, and that truly God will exalt his people once again in response to that. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we hear your word this morning, and as we consider the truths contained herein, Father, we pray that you will transform our hearts and our minds, 
that truly you'll help us to see the hope that is ours in Christ and the beauty that rests for those who humble themselves before you, who are broken over their sin, who no longer become the center of attention in their own life, in their own world, but truly out of a response to the gospel, see the risen Christ. And so too, as a result, find humility the path of true faithfulness. We ask that you'll do that and abundantly more even this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.